Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Think about all the images you see in a day, the advertisements, the photos and videos as you search the web or scroll through social media if you do that. Now think back a century and a half or so to when photography was new. Imagine the first time a British monarch saw a picture of an Inuit family or vice versa. What did they make of each other? What did it remake in themselves? My guest today, photographer Lindsay Adario, has spent over two decades traveling the world, taking intimate and dramatic photos, often of lives in crisis, the perpetrators and victims of tyranny, revolution, famine, and rape. Her work spans over 70 countries and has won her a MacArthur Fellowship and a Pulitzer Prize, but has never been gathered into a book of its own until now. Of Love and War gives her most compelling photos the space they deserve, along with essays, interview excerpts, and letters she wrote home to process the things she was witnessing. Lindsay's pictures offer people like myself, living out our lives in privileged circumstances, a window into the beauty, suffering, and everyday humanity of our contemporaries across the world. And like it or not, ready or not, when you stop scrolling long enough to look into one of these images, it looks back into you. Welcome to Think Again, Lindsay. Thank you so much. First of all, what was that task like going through all of your stuff and trying to decide what was worthy of inclusion? And I mean, I knew that I always eventually wanted to put something like this together. So I have, you know, over the years, of course, there are bodies of work that have sort of sat with me over time and that I kept going back to that whenever I do public speaking, I always sort of show those bodies of work. And so a few years ago, I started putting together these folders of images, some of not my favorite images, but some of the bodies of work that I felt kind of needed to be in a permanent collection if I were to ever do one. And so at the end of a year, for example, when I would just have time and start looking through and, and imagining what a photo book might look like, I ended up with thousands of images because I am a horrible editor of my own work. You know, I can't <laughs> really figure out what what's good and what's not. And, and so I then was given the name of Stuart Smith, who's a book designer in London, and he had a great reputation. He's done many, many books. And, and I went to see him and we talked about what a book like this might look like. You know, I have over 20 years of work. Is it something that's chronological? Is it by country? Is it by right. theme? You know, how do you do a book like this? And so luckily, I really deferred to Stu in that in that process because he has so much experience basically figuring out the flow of a book. And so I essentially dumped my archive on him and said, okay, well, have fun, figure it out. And right, 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 right. You know, and so I kept going back like every few weeks over the course of a year, and we kind of whittled it down and got it to a manageable point. I mean, it's a very, I mean, diverse is a mealy-mouthed word, but it's a very diverse collection of photos. It, it, it It's not just... I mean, it seems to me that photos serve different purposes, if that's, you know, and, and, and what I'm seeing is, you know, I'm seeing some that are extremely carefully composed where the aesthetics, I mean, I guess they're all carefully composed, but I can see some that are aesthetically composed, that one of that very stark one of the woman standing among a row of sticks. There's like tree stumps and she's in line with that, you know, kind of height with them and others that are clearly trying to jump deep into a moment or where you're trying to just like connect a person, you know, the viewer with 
the life that's going on there. Sure. And of course, both of those types of photography, whether it's sort of breaking news or I'm covering a very kinetic situation, that demands a very different type of photography. It demands like very reactionary photography where, of course, I'm trying to compose an image and get the content, tell a story, do all these things while sometimes being shot at or running from whatever's happening. And so that is a very different discipline from, for example, when I'm on assignment for National Geographic and I have three months to shoot a story and can repeatedly go back to a subject and I definitely have the luxury of deciding what time I photograph. And that is essential, of course, to a photographer because it's all about light. And you said something interesting, actually, though, in your memoir about how having that luxury of time to compose made you wonder, like when you were on assignment for National Geographic, whether the photos would have the kind of immediacy of impact that you wanted to see from your breaking news photography. Absolutely. I mean, that's something I struggle with all the time because what has compelled me as a photographer, um, not only to risk my life, but to go into sort of these far-flung places is to be able to affect policy and to be able to make people pay attention to issues that are happening right now and that might demand our attention or demand some sort of policy change like Yemen, for example. And it's not always, um, with National Geographic, the beauty of the magazine is that it's a gorgeous magazine, but often takes about a year of lead time. So those stories that I'm working on now won't appear for eight months. And so that's very challenging. And it seems like you were kind of an immediacy-oriented person from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there's a photo in the beginning of your book, and I and you talk about this in the memoir as well, of you, like, jumping into the swimming pool, and that's basically how you learned. You literally leapt into a swimming pool having no idea how to swim. Yeah, no. and I, well, obviously my parents and my sisters tell me that story, but I, you know, I, that's exactly who I am as a person. You know, if I feel something, if I want something, I go for it, and I, nothing really holds me back. Of course, as I get older, I'd like to think some things hold me back, but I think I feel very strongly and passionately about the stories I cover. And so I really want them out there as soon as possible. My mom's Italian. That feels a little Italian to me. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Um, But like, so in the beginning, though, I mean, this evolved. It sounds like anyway, from the memoir that your relationship with photography and your sort of mission as a photographer evolved over time. I mean, when you started out, you were a young person mainly seeking adventure in a sense. This moral gravity of the mission seems to have grown over time. Absolutely. I mean, when I started out, I was sort of, first of all, I wasn't very familiar with photojournalism. I didn't have any mentors. I was just a young woman being raised by hairdressers (laughs) and whatnot. You know, we weren't a particularly intellectual family. You know, we didn't have the New York Times on our table every morning growing up. You know, when I started photographing, it was driven in most part by curiosity and, and by a passion to travel and try and learn about different cultures in the world. And and so my camera was sort of this great excuse to go do those things and to enter in these places. And it wasn't until I started seeing pictures in the newspaper and understanding how they were being used to tell stories and to touch on issues that were demanded our attention um, as readers or as consumers of, of newspapers or magazines or whatever it was. And right. so... 
then I started, let's see, in the 90s and late 90s, I came back to New York and I basically learned how to be a photographer working at the Associated Press. Um, and I had amazing mentors there. And then in 2000, I moved abroad and went to, in, went to India and I started covering South Asia. And that's really sort of where I started having like this mission because I started becoming aware of injustices against women, uh, widows, for example, in India being sidelined to living in these villages, being ousted from their homes once their husbands died, working in Afghanistan under the Taliban and, and seeing how women lived. So all of these things built up to September 11th, which ultimately right. was like the culmination. It helps that you jumped in so early because there's a certain paralysis for me when I think about entering into these situations and you enter into situation after situation in cultures that you've maybe never visited before and sort of what is the, you know, when I try to wrap my mind around like what is the necessary contextualization, what is the what is my moral responsibility? What what would I have to ingest or understand before I can like go there? And I'm guess I'm wondering like at this point in your career, what makes it you feel you've done what you needed to do to deserve to be in the lives and getting yeah, these pictures. That's you know? interesting. That's a good question. I mean, I don't know what it is. Uh, what is it? What it is that makes me feel like I deserve to be there is the fact that before I even take my camera out, I introduce myself and I right. say what I'm doing. And then it's up to the person as to whether they want to let me in. Because, you know, a huge part of photography is having the trust of the people I photograph. Gotcha. And so without them essentially inviting me in or allowing me to come into their very intimate space, which it often is, I need to sort of introduce myself and say, gotcha. hey, this is what I'm working on. This is why I feel it's important for people to understand what's happening. Sometimes the people on the ground understand without even an explanation. I mean, I was in Yemen last month, and of course, everyone knows that it's one of the worst humanitarian crises of our time. You know, you have millions of people on the brink of famine. They're not getting almost any international attention because it's very difficult and dangerous to get there. And so I would show up at a hospital in a malnutrition and a ward treating severely malnourished children, and I would go into this whole thing. I'm with the, you know, I'm with the New York Times Magazine, and I want to explain what I'm doing. And the mothers were just like, "We know what you're doing." You know, <laughs> of course they were like, "Yes, of course you could take our picture," because they were so grateful that someone actually risked their life and made it there. And so I think, you know, sometimes it's understood. Sometimes if I'm in a maternity ward and a woman's about to deliver, she's like, "What are you doing here with a camera?" <laughs> like, obviously that's a very private space. One of the things that I deal with, and I sort of want to out myself here, like, that's a very ambivalent thing when I look through and try to kind of look deeply into mm. these kinds of photographs. I mean, there's just, first of all, there's a ton of guilt because I haven't arranged my life around running to Yemen, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I look and it feels like if you look into something like this and then you don't run off to Yemen, like, what the hell are you doing? You right. know, and so I just wonder, for you, because I, I I bet as a younger person, like, being over there doing this stuff, you might have been thinking in your head, ah, these people, a lot of these people back home, they don't give a shit, you know, whatever, whatever. But I wonder what your relationship to the viewer, especially the, the settled suburban 
viewer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, now is or how you think totally. about Totally. I think that the one thing I've learned evolving sort of as my career evolved from a young woman, you know, I grew up in Connecticut in a middle class family. I was very lucky. I had an incredibly privileged upbringing. And no, we weren't paying attention to the injustices of the world. Right. This is something that happened over time. So one thing that I've learned is that I don't ever expect anyone to lead the life I live. I do this so other people don't have to. I go to these places so people don't have to, but they can learn about where I'm going. So, you know, we all have different lives and we all have different interests and different tools to lead our lives. And so what I do and what me and my colleagues do is a very, requires a very specific set of tools to stay alive, to tell the story, to get in, to get out, to have the trust of people. And that is something that takes years to hone. So I think that it's crazy for me to think anyone would want to go run off to Yemen or to go to northern Nigeria and to have two-inch cockroaches flying around their bathroom every time they want to go to the bathroom, figuring out how to dodge them. You know, I think that these are things that it is often not a very pleasant existence, you know, but I have the luxury of coming and going. I can go in and I can go home. And I have a very nice house in London, which I feel so lucky to have, you know, so I think it's important to have perspective. And that's one of the things that I hope this work gives. It's like, you you can consume these photos, you can learn from them, you can can enter them. It's not gonna be a happy place sometimes, but you don't have to go there to feel like you're doing something. You can learn and I've accomplished half of my mission, you know. Mm, I also was thinking as I was looking at your your work, what the eye and what the lens can do, what it can tell and what it can't tell. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know you work often with writers, so there's contextualization through the writing. Mm-hmm. But what one wants is that, or what I want as the viewer, is that the camera takes me right inside the life of the other person. At the same time, I sit there and I say, well, I'm not really inside their life, am I? You know? I mean, we're missing, (laughs) you know, smell. Smell is a huge thing that you can't, obviously, that doesn't come across, you know? The sounds. I think one of the most powerful mediums for me, and I don't do it that often, which is crazy, is to record sound, is to record audio when I'm photographing Mm. and to do audio slideshows because I think when you when you look at a picture of someone to hear their voice makes a very big difference mm. you know there are some times where I've put those together and those to me are exponentially more powerful even if you have little video clips you know I think right. luckily we're in an age where you can do so much with digital and with multimedia that you couldn't do when I first started out so there are ways to bring the viewer in more outside of just making a compelling photograph, which of course has the immediacy. Do you feel still, I mean, in this very video saturated time that there is a categorical crucial difference between what a still photograph can do and what we can do with video in terms of getting into other people's lives or, you know, whatever your your mission might be? I mean, look, I, I believe in sort of, we all play a part. So I think video is incredibly powerful. Oh, I am right. a still photographer and that's sort of where I feel I do my best work and where I put my energy. I think if I, if I can, and I'm not always so coordinated, <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of sort of coordination and it takes a lot to do both at the same time. But 
I certainly, you know, if it's a long-term project, I try to also step aside, put my camera down and start recording audio, or I'll do some short video clips that are almost like video portraits. So it's a little fluid at yeah, this point. I'm always fluid. <laughs> I sort of, you know, I mean, I sort of learned on the job. I never went to photo school. I just sort of taught myself how to shoot and, right. and threw myself into things. So everything about the way I do this work is fluid. I shot a video in Sierra Leone of a woman who ended up dying on camera. And it was, I was shooting a video. I had no idea what I was doing, you know, but that video ended up being very powerful. Also, because you could tell it was so raw. It wasn't very sort of posed or clean. It was just sort of the messiness of death was in the video because I had no idea what I was doing. Or I walk into a situation, for example, and of course, I'm scanning the room immediately. And I think, wow, the sounds in this room are really interesting. And so I think maybe this is something that would require video or maybe, you know, I'm always sort of reevaluating whenever I walk into a situation, sort of what can I do Still photos are my priority, but what else can I do to add to the story? Because the goal is to bring in the viewer and the goal is to get them to pay attention. And so I need to use all the tools I have to try to do that. A lot of your work is still for the New York Times. Yeah. And that the perspective that you're explaining, that kind of fluidity and that that willingness to to try new things. I mean, I, I think anyone who's following paying attention has been really impressed with how the New York Times is doing that new digital, new interactive VR, whatever, all kinds of things, using them with that same, I don't know, moral depth and artistry as well to try to just get at this these things in different ways. They're really compelling. They, you know, the way they do those sort of rolling slideshows. Yeah, um, yeah, and those incorporate are powerful. sound and video. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you are bringing, even me as a photographer who spent my life looking and living these situations, they're incredibly consuming and powerful to see on that level, you know, because all of your senses are being basically touched and, and, and stimulated because you're inside these lives. And so I think that's exactly right. I mean, those are kind of the things we are lucky to have access, not only to editors and people who can create those for us, you know, as the artists, we hand over our, right. our assets and they sort of put together these incredible pieces, but also to be in this age where we have all these platforms. It's always nice to see them being used to actually even humanize us more. If Absolutely. Yeah. And not objectify people and not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, be sensationalist to sort of tell someone's story in a way that is really respectful. So now I want to do something that that might be impossible in a podcast. I, I want to look at a couple of photos with you. And so the audience is going to have to if they should make the wise choice of getting Lindsay's book of love and war, they can they can look and I'll tell them the page number where we are. But I want to look at a couple photos that just struck me and Great. talk about them. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. This one, actually, I don't know what page it's on because there's no page number. Um, it's one of the first like five Yeah, it's photos. an early yeah. image. So tell me, what are we looking at here? Okay, so this is in Kenya, and I was doing a story on the drought in the Horn of Africa, Right. and I was six months pregnant, and I um, was traveling in various places in, in Kenya, and I was photographing people waiting online for food. There were handouts, there were organizations sort of on the ground trying to see if children were malnourished and also providing them with food, and, and I was working in camps. 
And there was a moment where there were all these people sort of off to the side who were waiting for a food distribution. And I walked over to this tree because it was the tree that was so beautiful to me. It was this like right. the, the structure of the tree just seemed so, ge- this, like, so this geometric. Looks like, this looks like an old one of these trees that could be 500, 800 years old. I have no idea. But it's like a sprawling, largely lateral. You know, it's stretching out in all directions on the ground and leafless but maybe alive too still. Yeah, so it spoke to sort of the drought, of course, because there's no green in the picture at all. And then the children sort of looked like extensions of the tree. (laughs) They were this beautiful, like the the way they were playing, they just, it was just such a beautiful scene. And so, you know, there are a lot of pictures that I shoot that never get published. And so part of this book is being able to include pictures that, that I like for purely artistic reasons, you know, that didn't necessarily fit so easily into a story and didn't make the edit, and so I was able to put them in my own this, book. This one wasn't and this published. Was, no, it wasn't Wow. Published. I mean, it's an extraordinary photo, and the, these are boys mostly, I think, maybe mm-hmm. all boys. There's yeah. four of them, and yeah, they're climbing all over this thing. And there, there's no way to say this that doesn't reduce it to something less powerful than what the image is, but basically... There's just something incredible about the fact that in the middle of the drought, in the middle of this totally dead tree, these children are playing in something that looks totally impossible to play with. You know, they're finding play. I mean, that is the beauty of, you know. Children. Yeah, this is the beauty of children. And also in these villages where where kids don't have access to an extraordinary amount of toys and entertainment and iPads and screens and all the things that our children have these days here in the U.S. And so, you know, they make their own toys. They play with, you know, they do what I imagine our parents did when they were younger when they did. So, you know, it really, um, you know, was a very beautiful scene. It's just a lot easier for me to look at children and certainly the female victims of abuse and rape that you photograph, like, and think the stuff that's happening in their lives, they don't deserve that. That's not how life ought to be. You know, when I'm looking at a, a group of men waving uh, guns in the street uh, and even even adult soldier victims of those guns it's harder you know then i'm just like okay there's two sides of this ridiculous conflict or whatever absolutely and so yeah. you know that's why so much of my work is of women and children because obviously they are often the the victims you know of these wars that are not being perpetrated by them you know they're sort of the fallout so i think all of the the people who are marginalized by war their lives have been shaped by the wars around them, those are the people that I find most interesting. I've let, I've always been less in, interested in the front line because I feel like photographically what I can do on the front line is basically a picture of a guy waving a gun or shooting a gun or lying on his stomach and taking a position or running for cover. And yet those pictures are very important to have, but I'm not very good at that, you know, because I'm much better at the sort of the human aspect, you right. know? And so I have done it, but it's not what sort of has compelled me as a photographer. I mean, there's a couple of photos of men, particularly like child soldiers and men in prison mm. that you've done that are profoundly compelling just because you can see the mask of like aggression and defensiveness and like basically just all the energy of that person going into this like defiance that they're trying to 
perform in a weird reverse roundabout way, like that also gives you access to the trauma and mm -hmm. the suffering, you mm -hmm. know? That's always a struggle that any photographer has, is trying to take a situation we've seen a million times before and to, to sort of give it something a little more. Yeah, I mean, I should say also, you know, going back to the victimization of women, that many of the photos that you've taken or that I've seen of women who have been victims of rape and then what's striking in the context and in the photos, often they're with the children, their children of rape, who they, taking them out of the victim status, I mean, they are loving those children, they're raising those children, just the absolutely incredible resilience yeah, uh, you yeah. know generosity love fortitude i mean and fortitude, love, you know yeah, i mean like, it's it's and i've met some of the most incredible women throughout my career who have given me so much strength and who have given me perspective and who have taught me things that you, you can't really teach someone you have to just like watch and learn from the people around you. And these are, you know, they're not necessarily values that my parents didn't give me, but, you know, they're born into such different situations. So there's situations that we don't think about. And yeah. so I always try and learn from the people I photograph because I feel so lucky to even be able to go and meet them and to spend time with them. You know, I mean, it's such a privilege to have this life. I mean, you push yourself super hard as you are, you say, <laughs> yeah. a lot. Yeah. And, and demand a lot of yourself. How do you take care of yourself so that you can be present enough to actually learn, make sure that you're in a learning space with all the travel, with all the sure. jet lag, with, you know, I whatever. mean, it's hard because I'm the type of person, I'm very determined and very driven, and I basically will push myself until I collapse. I mean, I, I really will. And so I have a hard time saying no to good stories, and I always want to do everything. And I also have a child, and I have my husband. And, you know, so I'm constantly trying to sort of have everything, which is... Uh, almost impossible, of course. And so I get to the point, for example, my back, I have a really bad back. And so my back is often the indicator of when, okay. you know, because it just goes out. And it's, you know, I always say it's like the psychological, you know, it's it's when I've exhausted myself, my back just goes out. And so it's sort of gotcha. my body saying, Taking stop, like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to let you walk anymore, <laughs> you know? So those are sort of the things that I see as triggers. And whether it's psychological, you know, whether it's I have witnessed way too much and I need to sort of slow down, I won't allow myself that time. And so it's often sort of something physical. My body will give out in some way. Got you. Got you. So under normal circumstances, quote unquote, you have the energy and the drive to keep yourself open and do this work and whatever until the point where you basically collapse. Pretty and have much. To recuperate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much. I'm, I'm a very energetic person. I mean, I try and take care of myself. I go to the gym every day. I eat healthy. I try to really, I have tools to sort of keep my energy up. And I think it's just genetic. I mean, I have a 105 year old grandmother, you know, gotcha. I have, gotcha. a, you know, a mom who's almost 80 and she just survived breast cancer and she's still running around. You know, I have like a very energetic family. Let's find one more. I think we have time to talk about one other photo before we go to the second part of the show. Um, okay. Tell me what, yeah, what are we looking at? Here? So uh, this is in Lebanon. Uh, I had been covering, um, of course, the wars, the, the Arab Spring, and I um, went in and out of Syria during the war. And at some point, 
the story to me really became about Syrian refugees okay. because millions of Syrians were displaced from their homes, some within Syria and some outside of Syria. So I wanted to try and figure out how to tell the story of Syrian refugees in a way that, again, didn't turn away the viewer because we see so many pictures of refugees and, you know, people, people who are huddled and fleeing. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I don't, I'm trying to always find a way to humanize, to show sort of the intimate lives of people who are suffering from these, from these wars. And so I was photographing Syrians in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, I went in and out of Syria. So I was really, I was in northern Iraq. You know, I sort of was everywhere photographing Syrian refugees, but I wanted to go beyond the sort of picture of them fleeing and of them sort of running for their lives. So this was for UNHCR, so the United Nations High Commission of Refugees. And I was working in Lebanon and I I wanted something like a wedding or a birth because I think that these are things we can all relate to. But Syrians are also quite conservative and they don't necessarily feel comfortable comfortable, the women being photographed in these very intimate moments. And so there was this group of women who allowed me, this was an engagement party, it was right before the wedding. We're inside a tent We're inside a tent, and the women celebrate separate from the men, generally. Um, And so they were all dancing around, there was music playing inside, and the women were all dancing around and preparing for the wedding. And so I just felt like this was a really nice, different scene from what we usually see about with Syrian refugees. Yeah, we see their faces here, we, you know, hair is exposed, they're just having a good time. I mean, mm. one of the incredible things that I've learned from my first trip to Afghanistan under the Taliban is that just because a woman wears hijab or is wearing a burqa or has her face covered, it doesn't mean anything about her state of mind. I mean, some of right. these women are the toughest women I've met. I mean, they're strong, they're outspoken, they're articulate, they're intelligent. In the house, they run the show, you know, and so, and they also have a lot of fun, you know, they, they you know, and you got, you got pushback early on from some women that were surprised at the extent to which that was an issue for you, you know, the concern about women being oppressed via clothing, yeah. where they were like, eh, that's very small among our concerns. Exactly, but the thing, <laughs> you know, the thing that I did is that I went completely honestly about my ignorance. You know, I said, like, do you care about wearing a burqa? Is this what bothers you under the Taliban? Or is it the fact that you can't go to school and you're not educated? And, you know, the women in Afghanistan themselves were saying, we don't care about the burqa. You know, this is a piece of fabric. We don't, this isn't our main concern. You know, of course, they wanted the right to be able to choose how they wear their hijab, but that was one thing that was imposed on them amongst many. And so for them, it was really about the fact that they couldn't work and they couldn't go to school and they couldn't send their daughters to school. So, you know, I had no idea. But I think the key as a journalist is to go in without judgment and to say, Um, what do you think? You know, I know what I think. I have my own values. But that doesn't matter because this story is about you. So how do you feel? Yeah. You know what? I want to talk about one more real quick and then (laughs) then we'll we'll do the other part just because these are so great. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm seeing here, I'm looking at a swamp uh, full of lily pads with kind of tall reedy grass in the background, big gray sky cumulonimbus clouds, I think. Um, and uh, if my if my seventh grade geology teacher's lessons stay in my head properly. Um, and a boy on a boat, I can't, is this whole, or is that yes. a boat or a spit of land? No, it's this, a boat. It's a carved out canoe. They okay, can carve. This kid is on an enormously long boat at the very end of it, kind of totally alone. 
and wearing a shirt that looks like almost like it was sewed together from a Coca-Cola <laughs> ad or something. But tell me, tell me what I'm actually seeing. So this was <laughs> um, an image from the Display series that the New York Times did in 2015. It was their first experiment with virtual reality. And so Chol was a young boy. He was around 12 years old, many of these children don't really know their age. So we okay. had it at anywhere from about nine to 12. And Chol's village had been attacked by government forces. He lived uh, outside of Lair, which is a place in South Sudan. Okay. And his village had been attacked in the middle of the night. And Chol and his grandmother and one sister fled. They ran for their lives. His father was killed. And he did, He had eight other siblings, and he didn't know what happened to them because they ran. And of course, in their village, there was no telephone or electricity, and so he had no way to communicate back home. And so when I met him, he had fled a few months prior, and he had been literally making his way through these swamps, crocodile-infested, unbelievable situation, feeding himself and his grandmother and his sister with fish from the swamp and had been fleeing for his life and eventually made it to Nial, which was a place in South Sudan where he was, he and his uh, other relatives were en route to Kenya because they wanted to make it to Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya where there was stability and where they had other relatives and where he could go to school. So we literally intercepted their journey as they were fleeing from their village on, on their way to Kenya. And the, uh, the others are not in the boat there. He's out getting fish or whatever. Exactly. Okay. He's fishing for his family. Yeah. And so I spent, we were helicoptered into this island. It was in the Sud, which is a huge swamp in South Sudan. Okay. And we went in, spent five days with Chol, had to bring in our own food and water. I mean, there was nothing there. I mean, we were in tents and, and we spent five days with him. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that he so touched me, and he was such a, a wise, traumatized, clearly traumatized child who really, I, I kept thinking about him after I left, and I gave my phone number, to, phone number to his grandmother and whatever. And when they got to Kenya, his grandmother called me and said, you know, we made it to Kenya, <laughs> you know? And so they kept calling me. And at some point, like six months later, Time Magazine sent me to Lair on a different story. And it was a different publication, of course. So my feeling was, well, maybe I should see if Chol, if I can find Chol's mother. What if she's still alive? Maybe she doesn't even know that Chol's alive. And so I concocted this whole plan to try to find his mother. Right. And I got her full name and the village name from, from the family. And I went in, and very luckily, I was working with Aaron Baker for Time Magazine. We were we stayed with the ICRC in Lair, which was a ghost town. It was literally, the whole place was littered with skeletons. I mean, there had been a bloodbath there. And we went in, and we were some, I think we were the first, I think Nick Kristoff had been before us. So we were some of the first journalists to get in there after okay. the fighting. And there was a food distribution the next day with 17,000 people coming. And basically, I said to ICRC, who does uh, tracing families, and I said, you know, do you think we can find this woman? Here's her name and her village name. And I'll never forget, the team looked at me and they were like, if she's alive, she'll be there because everyone needs food. And so right. we went the next morning and I sort of was off shooting. There was this epic scene of people coming from across the horizon. And two hours later, the guy from ICRC, the team came to me and said, we found Chol's mother. 
And I was like, I don't believe it. There's no way. Like, there are 17,000 people here. How can you find the mother? And so they took me over to her, and I was like, where's your son? What happened to your village? I was sort of drilling her because I just couldn't believe. And at some moment, I realized it was her, and I just burst into tears because I thought, Joel doesn't even know she's alive, and she doesn't know that he's alive. And, and so anyway, I went the next day, and I had brought a copy of the New York Times Magazine with him on the cover, with this picture on the cover, because I couldn't, I thought, like, if I find her, I have to show her he's alive. And I brought her the picture, and she and her mother, who was a great-grandma, just started rocking back and forth crying, saying, my son, my son, my son, he's alive. And so that was the story. And so I, wow. I said to her, I'm gonna go tell your son you're alive. I'm gonna go see him. And I said, can I, what can I do? And she said, record a video of me. And she like sat up straight in her chair. And, and she said, essentially, she said, son, don't come home. There's nothing for you here. Go to school so you can graduate and come back and take care of us. And that's all she wanted. She just wanted him to go to school. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, that story just killed. I mean, that I, I sort of tear up every time I tell it. Yeah, I have no, no comment. <laughs> I'm literally, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by this. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Frivolous as it seems. I think let's, let's go to the second part of the sure. show where <laughs> sure. we discuss surprise clips from <laughs> Big Things video archives. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is going to take us in probably a very different direction, but I sure. think it's really interesting. Sure. Bruce Feiler, uh, I know very little about him except that he's a writer, but it's the video is titled "Discover the Secrets of Happy Families." <laughs> so let's see, let's see what that sparks. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There have been three big changes in the family in the last generation. First, the definition of the family has changed. So we now have adoptive families, blended families, nuclear families living in separate houses, and divorced families living in the same house. Also, we have women have flooded into the workplace. Two-thirds of women now work outside of the home. And the last thing, which we don't talk about as much, is that men have come flooding into the parenting space, and dads are much more involved in families. And I think this new generation of parents because they are much more active and much busier, technology, work, et cetera, they're much more interested in solutions. So that the old debates, be strict like the Chinese or be lax like the French, are no longer satisfying for them. They want results, they want to know what works, and they want to be able to do it in their families. I'm the father of identical twin girls, and my wife works, and we were incredibly chaotic. We just felt lost and out of control. We would turn to our parents, but their experience was so outdated as to be almost quaint. We'd Facebook our friends, but they're just as clueless as we are. And then we went looking for results, and the traditional solutions just seemed very tired and out of date. And yet at the same time that these family experts were telling us the same thing over and over again, in every other area of contemporary life, from business to sports to the military, there's all these new ideas about how to make teams and groups work more effectively. And so I wanted to go out, find out what those folks were doing in their homes, and then test those ideas out with my own wife and kids. 
And my wife put one red line in the sand. She said, okay, I'm willing to try new things. I'm desperate, but I don't want theory. I don't want some academic telling me what to do. I want to know that real families were actually doing these real things that I'm willing to try. There is this idea about families that exists no place else. We have our jobs. We work on those. We have our hobbies. We work on those. We have our bodies, our relationships. We work on those. Somehow there's this idea that, that families are just supposed to be. It's supposed to be organic, that kids come with their own instruction manual or something. But every parent I know doesn't feel that way. We feel like our lives are out of control. And if I could put it in one headline, I would say that as a parent, I felt like I was always playing defense and never playing offense. And yet there's all these new ideas out there. So if that's where the action is, if the action is in business or in sports or in someplace else, let's bring those ideas in. If your family doesn't have this problem, fine, don't take these solutions. I'm certainly not wagging my finger and telling people what to do. I'm saying that we were desperate for new ideas. I went founding them and I found a lot of them in unlikely places. When I set out working on the Secrets of Happy Families, I made a vow to myself that I wouldn't squeeze everything into a list of three or five or seven things that you must do to have a happy family. I don't know about you, but I hate those lists. I forget number two, I disagree with number four, and I feel like I'm doomed. One of the things I tried to do was to put 200 new ideas in this book because it would be very obvious that nobody could do them all. But if you pick three or five or seven that works for you, and it might be different than what works for me or what works for my sister, I think you can have a happier family. And to me, the biggest takeaway is you don't need some master plan. You don't need some big new scheme that's going to be hard to set up and impossible to follow. You need to take small steps and accumulate small wins. What's the secret to the happy family? Try. Okay. Wow. So I have lots of thoughts and feelings, and I'm sure you do too. I do. <laughs> Look, I grew up in like the world's most unconventional family. You know, I there were very few rules growing up. Basically, the only one was that we had to have dinner as a family at six o'clock pretty okay. much every night. But my parents both worked. They owned a hair salon on the weekends. We had a lot of fun. We always had about 15 kids in the house because we're four sisters and we always had friends over and we always had a really fun house. And so and then uh, my dad came out and left my mom for right. Bruce, and they're still together 35 years later and still very much in love. And so what we've done is we we all go on vacation together. So there are 16 of us or 17 of us who we go together, my mom, my dad, Bruce, my sisters, the husbands, the kids, you know, right. and that... And all we do is laugh when we're together. You know, we talk about things, we laugh. And so we have a pretty happy family. Now, That's my yeah. for my own family, I have my husband and son. I, of course, try and recreate that because I feel like every time I look back at my childhood, I have the most incredibly fond memories. Yeah, I How think, do you try to recreate? Like, what well, are you trying to do? I try and foster that creativity and happiness and having people around. And I loved having an open house growing up. I loved the fact that I would come home from school and I never knew who was sort of going to be there, mm, you know? And mm, so I mm. think it's really cool to have a creative open household where you've got a lot of people coming in and out. It's different, though, because we live in London. My family is here in the U.S., and we don't have a family in London. You know, we have some of my husband's relatives are there, but right. in a city, people are busy, and, and everyone's sort of consumed with their lives, so it's it's tough to recreate that. And the open house model somehow doesn't feel very British. No, <laughs> it's not. No, it's a bit more proper. 
people plan like a lot in advance in, in, like, in England. Oh, you've arrived at my door. How interesting. Yeah. Would you like a crumpet? <laughs> yeah. You know, so we end up, you know, basically what we do is we meet up with my family every summer and every Christmas and we spend two weeks or a week with them and, and, and sort of have that great energy together. I want to veer in a slightly different direction because there was something in your memoir that I found really interesting. There's this economic thread that runs through your story. The family split. Mm -hmm. Things got real hard for your mom economically. Mm -hmm. When you came into young adulthood, it was Mm kind of like you're on your own, kid. I mean, you had to, you know, you asked for, what was it, like (laughs) your wedding wedding money money in advance? Was it your dad and Bruce? They were not open to the idea of giving you money to go photograph somewhere, yeah? yeah? So you didn't have that safety net. And so throughout all the work, there's that sense of self-reliance. There's that you got to, you know, make it. And then that also kind of comes up in the relationship with your husband, now husband, Paul, where you learn he's a lord or something. He's a count. He's a count. (laughs) So my parents really believed in instilling work ethic in us. And I don't know if that's because my parents are like immigrant children, you know, my my entire- Are they first generation, second generation? So my dad's mother was born in Southern Italy and came over, I think, 1917 or 1921, Ellis Island, the whole thing, and taught herself how to read, was working on a farm, and then was working in a factory, and then, you know, so- my dad was raised with an unbelievable work ethic. My mother, too, was raised in a very poor Italian-American family. Gotcha. Her grandparents came over from Italy, not her parents. And so all Italians, very, very poor and very driven to work. And so my parents, although they made a very good living in Connecticut, they believed in making us work for what we wanted. And I thank them for that because I think sometimes I wish I didn't work as hard as I do, but I, you know, (laughs) it's it's something that drives me a lot. Not the money, but the fact that I want to be relying on myself. My mother always said, don't depend on a man, don't depend on someone else. Make sure that you can take care of yourself. And and my dad did that without so much as saying it, but by saying, basically, if you want something, work for it, you know? Got and it. so I think that was very important. My husband, yes, he's a cow he's, you know, <laughs> but, but he also, his parents also taught him to work and didn't give him these great handouts, and which is why we were able to fall in love and be together okay. because so you have he, that in common. Yeah, we have that in common. I mean, he worked as a journalist for Reuters for 16 years and worked very, very hard. And so we were able to, of course, have that in common. But I think naturally, you know, his upbringing is very different. He was raised like in a castle outside of Monaco. Wow. And so not for his whole life, but for the first six years of his life. Is and that, that castle still in the family? Do you, do you no, see, see that castle ever? Okay. It's not in the family right. anymore. Right. And so, and then his parents got divorced and he moved to Sweden. And so mm. he was raised in Malmo in Sweden. And, you know, his mom took care of, raised he and his sister alone, and gotcha. which is why he's so grounded. And so I think, you know, all of that contributed to, of course, who is today and to our relationship because we have overlap. As you say in the memoir, among the men in your life, he could really roll with the tumultuous nature of the work and and so on. How old is your child now? He's almost seven. He's uh, he'll be seven December twenty eighth. Okay, and you know as he emerges, as you know, he's obviously a personality. He's, he knows who you are. <laughs> you know whatever. How does that affect your situation when you have to go abroad? Sure. So I've been traveling 
since he was three months old. So I think it's sort of the norm for him, knowing that my work requires me to leave. Of course, he doesn't understand exactly what I do. He knows that I take pictures and then I travel, that I go to Africa, that I work in the Middle East. I recently went and spoke to his class of six-year-olds, which was really cute. Uh-oh. And I showed him the story of Chol, actually, the, the young oh, wow. boy that we just talked about. Wow. And so he doesn't understand the danger, of course, that goes along with my work. But very luckily, my husband works from home more often than not. And so he is able to be sort of the primary caregiver and, and the person who is with Lucas all the time. He's a, he's gotcha. a constant with Lucas. And he's amazing. You know, he's an incredible father. So I feel really really lucky. He has that anchor. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I could never do this work without Paul, you know. So I think I've been lucky. I've been able to continue to travel. I try to keep the trips to two weeks maximum. That Mm -hmm. doesn't always happen. So it has somewhat changed the rhythm of of your life. I mean, having a Yeah, I think inevitably it does. You know, I mean, look, before I was married or before I had a child, I'd go for a month or two months at a time, you know. And, And now, of course, I try to come home in between assignments. But some assignments are busier than others. Some assignments require me to stay away for a longer period of time. And also some assignments I can't control when they come up. You know, that's right. the other thing. Sometimes you I'll be waiting. Yeah, or I'll be waiting for a visa for months and it comes through and I have to go and it's not necessarily at the best time. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, well, there will come a moment, I guess, when what is your son's name? Lucas. Lucas, when he knows, when he understands something of the danger, and that'll be an interesting conversation, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's funny because he's a smart kid and he asked me, we were, I, I show him the pictures I can show him and I was doing a story on refugees and he was looking at the pictures and I was explaining, you know, what a refugee is. It's someone who often has to flee from their country because of war or fighting and, right. you know, they run for their lives and they, and so he's like, but mommy, if, and he has a very thick British accent <laughs> and he's like, if you're covering refugees, are you also fleeing for your life? <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, really? Did you put that together right? Like, you're not supposed to figure that out. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. We just float in in a magical bubble, and then we float out again. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, like, one of the most absolutely most striking things in the memoir for me was that what happened to you in Israel. I mean, there's many crazy things that happened to you that we could talk about, but how pregnant were you? I was 28 weeks. 28 weeks. You're going into Gaza, right? You've written ahead to request not to have to go through the scanner on account of radiation and whatever, yeah? So what happens when a journalist goes into Gaza is you have to go through the Israeli minister, the press ministry. And so you have to get accredited, you have to go in, show all your paperwork, prove that you work for whatever publication. And so I did that before going into Gaza. So they had me registered as a journalist for the New York right. Times. And so I then went into Gaza. I spent about two weeks on the ground and it was time to leave. So before I went out, I called Shlomo, who was the press officer. And I said, do you remember? I'm working with the New York Times. You accredited me. I'm 28 weeks pregnant. And I feel uncomfortable about going through all of the scanners at 
the crossing is almost like an airport. Um, Eretz, Eretz crossing. Eretz crossing. And so it's almost like an airport where uh, there are several different layers of security. Yeah. And, yeah. So you go, and then you you and you're like, "Hi, I'm the one who said that you know I don't I'm not going through the scanner," and the, and they force you to go through. So basically, they what screw happened? with you. They just yeah. screw with you. Well, what like, happens just because obviously I am a journalist, so I have to just say the facts, and the reader or like the listeners can just everything is with an intercom system because the Israelis uh, stay up above behind bulletproof glass in case there's a suicide bomber. And so the people on the ground uh, help load your luggage, but they're Palestinians and or from Gaza. And so I press the sort of intercom and I say, hi, I'm with the New York Times. I talked to Shlomo. I'm 28 weeks pregnant and I feel uncomfortable about going through the scanner. Would you be able to do a manual check? Um, he paused and he said, you can take all your clothes off and we can strip search you. And I sort of thought, well, that's unnecessary. Okay. So I turned to my colleague, Steve Farrell, and he was living in Israel at the time. And he said, just go through it because they're going to torture you, basically, if you don't just go through the scanner. And yeah. he's like, it's fine. It'll be fine. Once will be fine. And so I went, and it's one of those full-body, you know, glass sort of uh, circular, yeah, that goes all around. And so I go in, and I put my hands up, and the scanner goes around, and the red light, which indicates when you can move forward, turned green. And then as I'm about to walk through, it turned red again. And they were like, whoops, you moved. And they're all up above sort of looking at me from the glass box. and, And they were like, you have to do it again. And I was like okay, well, that's annoying, but what am I going to do? I'm stuck in this, like, glass box, you know? And so, again, I hold my hands up in a triangle, and the scanner goes around, and and they started giggling. They're like, whoops, you moved again. And they did it three times. And so, at this point, I'm completely beholden to them because I'm in this sort of, you know, I can't get to the next layer, essentially, of security. So they finally, after three times, the red light turned green and stayed green. And then I went to the next area, which you're supposed to go straight ahead to then exit. You know, of course, they've done now three metal detectors. And and instead, they directed me to the right into a room with sort of a graded floor, which I was told if you get put into the room with the graded floor, that's for suicide bombers or people in case they're suicide bombers that the explosion, the... the Shrapnel or whatever. Everything goes down, is sucked down rather than out. And so she said, that's where you get strip searched. It was an AP photographer who had sort of warned me. And so I end up in this dark room with a graded floor and I thought, no way, this is not possible. I mean, it's not, I'm a pregnant woman and they've just done three scans and and so suddenly a light flips on and there's a woman behind bulletproof glass and she says take all your clothes off and I looked at her and I was like are you joking and I said what your metal your your machine wasn't working and she said take your clothes off and I looked at her and I said you're really sick this is crazy are all those men who were up in that glass box are they all watching too and so I had to I was strip sir I mean I had to take all my clothes off and stand naked in my underwear in front of this woman at 28 weeks pregnant possibly the other men yeah I mean who knows who knows and so then she said okay get dressed and I was so I remember I was shaking with anger and I remember thinking I'm a New York Times accredited journalist 
what on earth do they do to the Palestinians who go through this security? You know, that's what sort of sat with me is like, wow, this is really astonishing. You know, I'm not on one side or another. I'm there to document a story. I was there for a prisoner exchange. And if you have an accredited journalist who you know is working for a given publication, you don't treat them like that. It's not a joke, you know? And this was, you know, and what interested me was that it was the Israeli media who wanted to cover it. They were incensed. I mean, they were furious about how I was treated. So it was really a lot of Israeli press that reached out and said, this is unconscionable. Like, how can our government do this? And so, and I think they were right. I think at the end of the day, journalists should not be treated, dragged into whatever is happening in a given country. You know, we are there to tell a story and that's it. We don't take sides. And so to strip search a New York Times journalist when she's 28 week pre- weeks pregnant after doing three x-rays, I mean, it's, it's a joke. No, it's completely insane. Yeah. But, and it's also gratifying to hear that their media went. went yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that. Israeli yeah. media. was amazing. You know, they wanted to tell that story within Israel. And I think that's the only reason why I got a public apology. Lindsay Adario, I I want to respect your time, and I, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much. This has been a great, great conversation. Thank you today. so much. Thanks for having me. Lindsay's book is Of Love and War, and uh, it is out now, and it, it's gorgeous and beautiful and powerful. Thank uh, you. I recommend you guys take a look. Thank you. So I want to say something to everyone that's listening out there that might, I don't know how it might sound, but life quite simply is hope. It's a cliche, but it's true. And no matter how smart you are, it's a fact. We need hope. And we find or we create it in different ways. But I hope your life right now is filled with possibilities. And if it isn't, I hope that you'll reach out in the directions you need to, or that hope will surprise you from some unexpected quarter. I'll be back next week with a very different take on life in the universe from astronomer Michelle Fowler. And I hope to have you here with me.